0: heads and um, thank you that by your grace you've given us eyes to see them and ears to hear them and hearts to believe them thank you that you have embraced us and that's that's why we uh, have have embraced you um as john says it is not that uh, we loved you but you first loved us and um we thank you for that. We, we want to rest in that. We ask you uh, for growing faith, growing ability to rest in that. Uh, and we pray this evening, even as we talk about these things from Hebrews chapter 9, that our hearts would be encouraged. So bless us with your presence. Uh, strengthen our faith uh, with our time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I mentioned in the, in the sermon this morning um, this book. Uh, my quoted C.S. Lewis saying, um, um, "Let's see. I, I could go get my notes and and read it for you, but um, how, how does it start? I can't think of how it starts. But he just makes this observation that that um, you, you can't you can't call Jesus." just a good moral teacher, because a man who was just a moral teacher wouldn't have said the kinds of things that he said. The kinds of things that he said are the kinds of things that a person, a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, would say. right? And because throughout the scriptures he he repeatedly attributes to himself those characteristics of divinity, as I, I tried to help us see this morning, even in that little bit of instruction that he gives to his disciples regarding the, the the donkey and the foal, are you guys freezing? Is it way cold in here? Okay, um, we'll bump these things up a bit. So here is this little part of a little conversation that that uh, Bono has with this um, fellow named uh, Michka Asias. I think that's a Greek name. I think those are Greek names. But he's a, he's a journalist and, and uh, knows the band and has interacted with the band. And um, you're going to have to sing him at the end, Ray. Right. Okay, but just hang on. We'll sing him at the end. Okay. okay? So here we go. Um, this is this little exchange. I really believe we've moved out of the realm of karma into one of grace. This is Bono speaking. Okay, Karma. And then the interviewer says, well, that doesn't make it clearer for me. That doesn't help. Um, And then Bono says, well, you see, at the center of all religions is this idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet along comes this idea called grace, to upend all that as you reap, so will you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. interviewer says, I'd be interested to hear that. Bono says... That's between me and God. (laughs) But I'd be in big trouble if karma was finally going to be my judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Then the interviewer says, The son of God who takes away the sins of the world. I wish I could believe in that, Bono says. But I love the idea of the sacrificial lamb. I love the idea that God says, look, you Cretans, there are certain results to the way we are, to selfishness. And there's mortality as a part of your very sinful nature. And let's face it, you're not living a very good life, are you? There are consequences to actions. The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out does not come back to us and our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point. It should keep us humbled. It's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. Interviewer, that's a great idea, no denying it. Such great hope is wonderful, even though it's close to lunacy in my view. Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but Son of God isn't that far-fetched. Bono, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet, a prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word, because, you know, we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no. I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps, but actually I am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh my, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. Which is exactly, I mean, he, this is Lewis <laughs> through the filter of, you know, a 44-year-old rock and roller who really seems to have embraced the Messiah. Really seems to, and really seems to understand the implications of the things that Jesus says about himself in the New Testament. So, pretty amazing, and it was too long to read this morning, but glad you asked about it tonight, because it's really, really remarkable. And, and uh, if anybody's interested, I can give you the link after the the, um, the time tonight. Um, Justin, you want to look? Yeah, okay. Not while I'm teaching, though, because it's not very respectful. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, there's a, I'd be happy to show you this link. I, I have a, Zach sent me a link to an interview that somebody did with, with Bono, and, and he says the same stuff. And that's, this is fairly recent. This is, I don't know what the publication date of that is. It's several years ago, but this is, um, this is recent stuff. So very, very interesting, but he, he gets the implications. Now, I've I got to share one more thing with you, okay? And this is Lewis. Um, you know how, through um, kind of through the period, the time, well, it was before Advent and then after Advent and Christmas and and in the lead up to to Holy Week, we looked at the life of Peter, and I kept saying to you, um, what happens in Peter's life. Is that Jesus gets bigger and bigger, and Peter gets smaller and smaller. Jesus gets bigger and bigger, and everything else gets pushed to the periphery. and the And the key, the key to growth in the Christian life, is that Jesus gets bigger and bigger. Well, um, I'm reading the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I I honestly, it's true confessions. I I don't recall that I've ever read through all of them. I've messed around in them, you know, extracted quotations from them. So I'm reading them, and I I, I told Barb um, the other day I'm gonna I'm gonna keep reading them. I mean, I'm gonna go back, and you know, when I finish, I'm gonna keep reading. Well, there is this there is this incredible scene in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, in which uh, Caspian and Edmund and Lucy. Find themselves on another one of these eastern islands, and it's a deserted island. And um, they are—they're—they're they're doing two things. They're—they're they're looking for the seven lords who were exiled from Narnia when the 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 um, uh, the uncle when Caspian's uncle usurped the throne. But they're also—they're trying to find Aslan's country. Right, So they've sailed east and um, they have these experiences on these islands. Well, on this particular island, as they're wandering around, they come to this pool. And um, just to kind of make the long story short, it turns out that if anything you put in this pool will turn to gold. Right? It'll turn to gold. So... Um, Caspian grabs a, a, a bunch of brush and, and dips the brush in the pond and it turns to gold. And this is what happens. Very cautiously, he knelt beside the pool and dipped it in. It was heather that he dipped. What he drew out was a perfect model of heather made of the purest gold, heavy and soft as lead. The king who owned this island, said Caspian slowly, and his face flushed as he spoke, would soon be the richest of all the kings of the world. I claim this land forever as a Narnian possession. It shall be called Goldwater Island. And I bind all of you to secrecy. No one must know of this, not even Drinian. On pain of death, do you hear? Who are you talking to, said Edmund? "'I am no subject of yours. "'If anything, it's the other way around. "'I am one of the four ancient sovereigns of Narnia, "'and you are under allegiance to the high king, my brother. "'So it has come to that, King Edmund, has it?' said Caspian, "'laying his hand on his sword hilt. "'Oh, stop it, both of you,' said Lucy. "'That's the worst of doing anything with boys.'" You're all such swaggering, bullying idiots. (gasps) Her voice died away into a gasp, and everyone else saw what she had seen. Across the gray hillside above them, gray, for the heather was not yet in bloom, without noise and without looking at them and shining as if he were in bright sunlight though the sun had in fact gone in past the slow pace past with slow pace the hugest lion that human eyes have ever seen in describing the scene lucy said afterward he was the size of an elephant though at another time she only said the size of a cart horse but it was not the size that mattered nobody dared to ask what it was They knew it was Aslan. And nobody ever saw how or where he went. They looked at one another like people waking from sleep. What were we talking about, said Caspian? Have I been rather making an ass of myself? Sire said, Reepicheep, this is a place with a curse on it. Let us get back on board at once. And if I might have the honor of naming this island, I should call it Deathwater. I read this and I thought, there it is. Boom. Here are these these two guys. Caspian has never said, I mean, you read these things. Caspian is the most noble character you'll ever encounter. Edmund had his issues. Remember? Edmund had his issues. In the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Edmund has become a delightful guy, but here they are, each of them with the prospect of becoming unbelievable, I mean, the wealthiest king in the world. And they end up ready to brandish their sabers and kill each other. And who is it who steps into the scene and drives? their jealousy, their envy, and their covetousness to the periphery. Aslan. Aslan. I I wrote a little Facebook post about this, and I I use this as as an illustration of the expulsive power of a greater affection. How do you get rid of an inordinate affection? Not by saying, no, 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 don't, don't, don't but by finding something more worthy of your affection, a greater affection, which is Christ, which is Aslan. I, I mean, I'm, like, right, we all knew this guy was brilliant. Well, sorry, had to share those things with you. I told Barb coming in, I can kind of do whatever I want, so I'm going to share these things. I, I just found that to be really, really rich. Um, and a great illustration of what we were talking about um, with Peter. Okay, Hebrews um, chapter nine. Or any, you want to make a comment about that, or ask a question about either Bono or C.S. Lewis? Uh, By the way, both Irish. Uh, Big surprise, huh? Big surprise. I'm going to say about Bono though. he sounds quite a bit like Josh McDowell on I mean, evidence that demands a verdict. You know, Josh is—he's like a. It's like every other Scott. He just stole his stuff from the Irish. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, but Josh McDowell got his whole thing from C.S. Lewis. That's where he. That's where he got his. His deal, liar, lunatic, or Lord. Okay, uh, Hebrews nine. I, I want to look and um, it. I gave you an outline uh, last week. I have a few copies of it left. If you want if you didn't bring your outline. From last week, um, I just wanted to spend a little time looking, particularly at verse fourteen. Uh, you talk about slowing down, Frank. I mean, we're slowing down to a crawl here by looking at uh, just one verse. Um, but um, Jones talks about this verse uh, pretty extensively in his in the in the book and the study guide, and, in, and it really is, I think, worth focusing on because um, there are some some great points here that sort of flow out of what we talked about last week when we, as we focused on the meaning of blood, the significance of blood, the shedding of blood, the ideas of expiation and propitiation. Um, so look, look at verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So in those two verses, there's a contrast that's established, right? There's a contrast that's set up between uh, the blood of bulls and goats and the use of that blood, uh, of sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, um, a contrast between that and the blood of Christ linked by this little phrase, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Um, so again, the, you know, the, the, the thing the author is trying to do here, um, it's the whole focus of this letter is to show us the excellency, the supremacy, the superiority of Christ um, and here is contrasting these Old Testament rituals, which did have their place. Right? They did have their place. Um, Old Testament sacrifices could do two things for you: they could provide ritual cleansing, and they could provide relational cleansing. Okay. So, so if someone commits a sin. Um, they make an offering, a sacrifice for that, and with that sacrifice, through that sacrifice, they gain readmission back into the worshiping community. Right, um, and then there are other sacrifices that were offered in the cases of like physical uh, impurity and uncleanness, everything from leprosy to you know just various other things that would make a person. Not only ritually unclean, but relationally unclean. So that when a leper, uh, the leper came to Jesus and Jesus healed him, he, he was instructed, or maybe it was the ten lepers came to Jesus and, and were healed. The one came back and Jesus said, go show yourself to the priests. Why? So you can be restored to the community by virtue of a sacrifice that you would offer. But, but there's this third thing, which the, which the writer is saying, cannot be touched by those rituals. And what is it? The conscience, the heart, the soul, can't be touched by those rituals. Uh, they do not provide clean, the cleansing, the purifying of the conscience before God, that we ultimately need. Now, you know, we've we've talked about all of the symbolism that there is in this. Um, In fact, it it would just be a good exercise to think about this, this how much more thing, um, in, in, in how many different ways the sacrifice of Christ is actually greater than these Old Testament sacrifices. You know, we did this a couple of weeks ago, I think, or sometime recently, just and you 'll kind of have to do this from from memory but but just how how is the sacrifice of Christ better than greater than those old testament sacrifices when they, were they were temporary. How do we know they were temporary because you had to go back again and again and again, okay so they Okay, The blood of bulls and goats doesn't compare. I mean, the blood of a, of a person, the blood of Christ itself, greater than the blood of bulls and goats. Um, what, what are the, as the priests go back again and again, do you remember there's this little, and again, I don't have the references, but there's this very interesting little phrase about what the priests do when they're in the Holy of Holies. They're always standing Right? Where, do you, where is Christ? Seated. Okay? Which suggests or reinforces the idea the work is done. that the work is finished. The only, remember this, the only time you see Christ standing in the New Testament, where is it? Acts chapter 7. Stephen's defense. And why is he standing? He's standing as his advocate. He's standing pleading the sufficiency of his own finished work for Stephen. The earthly court is condemning him. In the heavenly court, he's being vindicated by the one whose work is sufficient for Stephen, even though Stephen's not, you know, not guilty. But it's a wonderful picture of, of Christ acting in Stephen's behalf as his high priest, having completed the work that ensures for Stephen his acceptance with the Father. So, okay, so, have to be repeated, um, they're always standing, um, blood of bulls and goats, not, not like, right, the blood of Christ is like us, the blood of bulls and goats, not so much. What other, what other ways? Yeah, okay, well, we, yeah, and we'll, we'll come to that, um, in just, in just a second, um, the, the language here that Jesus offers himself, right? Any other things that come to mind as you think about how Jesus' work is superior to, greater than, the, the work of the... Those priests had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Right? Um, those priests died. <laughs> Jesus doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. Jesus doesn't lie. doesn't die. He lives forever. So, you know, all of these ways, this this sacrifice of Christ, as as you read through Hebrews, um, being contrasted with these Old Testament sacrifice, proves to be uh, greater, better. But then there's this, you know, there's this, and and this to me is really haunting. And and I think it really kind of gets to the to the nub, to the, to the core of the beauty of the gospel and its practical application. The writer here is saying that through the blood of Christ, your conscience can actually be cleansed and purified. Now, um, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure what that suggests about the Old Testament saints and what their consciences were like as they went through this repeated cycle of making sacrifices, time after time after time, and year after year after year. I mean, you you just sort of get don't you get this sort of sense that, gee, maybe I'm not safe, <laughs> right? Maybe I'm not safe if these things have to be done repeatedly over and. I mean, the thoughtful, sensitive conscience, it seems to me, would be thinking, you know, when is enough going to be enough? When is the thing going to come that will really put my conscience at rest, put my heart at rest? I, I think the writer of the Hebrews in this little verse is arguing for something that is incredibly powerful at a practical level. He is saying that the death of Christ, perfect, sufficient, completed, is sufficient, it's adequate, it's enough to put your conscience at rest. For your conscience to be cleansed, right now—that's d- huge. I mean, what do you struggle with? When Here, here's here's one of my great fears. Okay, one of my great fears. One of my great fears is that, that my, I'm not going to do my taxes right, and I'm going to get a letter from the IRS. And and around tax time, I. I mean, it's just—I mean, our taxes are done, and I had to pay the government, and you know, did, you know, like what everybody does. But I just think, gee, did I miss something? Did I misunderstand something? Is something and are they going? And my conscience is troubled, right now. That's a small—it's a pathetic commentary on me. It's a, but think about what sin does to your conscience, and how deeply, how deeply troubled you can be at the level of conscience, and how, and how. Uh, plagued you can be by a sense of your own insufficiency and inadequacy or your most recent failure or your most recent same failure. (laughs) Not a new, you know, you've heard me say this, not a new one, but the same one. Like wouldn't, do you ever think this? I think I've said this too. I'd like to crawl inside your skin just for once to struggle with what you struggle with just for some change. But it does, I mean, isn't it, Doesn't that what drives you nuts about the you know this, this struggle with sin, this perennial, perpetual struggle with sin? It's not something new. It's the same dang stuff. Whether it's elder brother stuff or younger brother stuff, right? What, and we, we have good good friends um, live in Orlando whose uh, second daughter, second child, is just kind of the embodiment. Of compliance and obedience and external righteousness. Do you know what she struggles with? Guess pride. And it's a relentless, perennial struggle for her. Right? John Owen, big brain, wrote big books. Do you know what he struggled with? Pride. Right. I mean, this Christian school that our kids went to, they used to give this uh, Christian character award every year. And I said to the, the headmaster of the school one time, you know, in all honesty, I think, I think you, give, you give that award to the wrong kid. You give, that, you give that award to people who are compliant, which only reinforces their sense of self-righteousness. You really need to give that award to our middle daughter who fights every single day to keep her little fanny in her chair. She's the one who's leaning against all the rules. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? So it, it and so for it's either elder brother stuff or younger brother stuff. Doesn't doesn't matter the the point is our consciences can be deeply plagued and deeply troubled and and what the, i think this is incredibly pastoral stuff for the writer to be saying he didn't have to say this right he could have just said the blood of christ is sufficient it's better in all these ways but this is how it's better it does something for you that none of those old testament sacrifices could do it is actually big enough adequate enough, sufficient enough to put your conscience at rest so that you can put your head on the pillow at night and know that you're secure and safe in the embrace of Jesus. That, yeah? Are the dead the ritual? When it says from the Is that what really you the rituals? Yeah. Um, I think so, yes. I, I think, I think it, it's probably a fairly big bucket. That's a great question. I didn't look real closely at that. I'm guessing that he's, he's referring to works of the law, any sort of construct that we erect and conform to, that we think by conforming to that, that sort of standard will gain acceptance with God. Yeah. But they're dead. Does it does it, it uh um, add anything to the fact that people who think by their works they are saved? Does it free people from, from thinking that way? I think it can. I mean I think yeah, I think he's yeah, he's suggesting that well I I'm, I'm not sure I'm understanding your question. Not, you know, this was meant the I think the yeah, I would say the rituals are very much in view, yes. Well, the rituals were good works, that, right? I mean, all of that, all of that legal stuff, those, the rituals, too, were good works. To perform those things without faith, apart from faith, makes them dead works, right? Yeah, so, so this... But again, I, 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 my, what I'm suggesting here is that the author... The author is addressing folks, helping, trying to help us understand that there, there really is something here which can put our consciences at rest. Not everybody's conscience is troubled, which is a problem, whether you're an elder brother or a younger brother, right? Whether you're a perfectly moral person or a perfectly immoral person. People's consciences aren't troubled. That's a problem, right? But, but I, I think he has in view people... Here are people whose consciences are troubled, and he's and he's saying something beautiful and incredibly pastoral, that this sufficient, complete work of Jesus Christ is big enough to put your conscience at rest, so you never have to ask again when is enough, enough, because enough is here, and and the enough is the shed blood of Christ, right that's yeah, yeah, so, yeah, right. Uh huh. Uh huh. We know Christ died and was resurrected. None of those goats that they passed the sins died and they were resurrected. None of the priests to officiate over. No, that's the true. Died and that's resurrected. That's right. No, I think we mentioned that right. that that the priests had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Christ didn't, and all the priests died. Right. And while Christ died, he was raised, as you're pointing out. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, very clearly, ways in which his work is greater. Okay, so now, so how is it that we can know um, and have this assurance that um, that the blood of Christ will cleanse the conscience, purify the conscience, put the conscience at rest? Last week we talked about expiation, talked about propitiation, um, we didn't talk so much about what lies beneath expiation and propitiation, which is substitution. I don't know that we, that we talked about that. Uh, and substitution is not used in this text, but the idea is here. Right? Uh, verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God... Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And I've, I've just listed, in addition to the how much more thing, just a few, uh, a few other little words here for us to think about. Offered himself. Well, we, we have talked about that. That captures um, the Old Testament imagery of the high priest making an offering, right? Offering the sacrifice. The day of atonement is the day is the sacrifice that stands at the apex of all of these other um, sacrifices. Um, The the high priest, the two goats, the one slain, um, the other the scapegoat upon whose head the sins of the people are confessed, who's led out into the wilderness. The high priest then offering these sacrifices, taking this blood into the Holy of Holies, sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat, visually depicting... Uh, representing for us the removal of sins so that there can be the reunion of a holy God uh, with an unholy people. Um, And here, the, the author is picking up that language, all of that imagery, showing us Christ, both as the high priest, the one who is doing the offering, and then offering himself as the sacrifice, the sacrifice that fulfills all of the typology of those Old Testament sacrifices. So he offers himself. Um, There's a little bit of discussion in the the book um, that focuses on this distinction that that has been made historically um, among the theologians between what we call the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. Is that language familiar to you? Notice he says, offered himself without blemish to God. Now if you wanted to parse this little sentence and pull those two phrases apart, offered himself and without blemish, um, you could attach to the without blemish part of the thing what historically is referred to as the active obedience of Christ. And I I I've, I think I've said this on Sunday evenings, maybe in sermons. I know I have, but it's it's worth pointing out again remembering that Christ was your substitute in his living before he was your substitute in his dying. He offered himself without blemish. He lived in perfect conformity, fully satisfying all of the righteousness of God, lived in perfect conformity to the law of God. The law of God summarized by the two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He did that every single moment of every single day. There was never a moment when Jesus succumbed to the kind of temptation that Caspian and Edmund succumbed to. Right? Loving gold more than Aslan. Right? Jesus always loved the Lord his God, his Father, with all of his heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. I mean, you read the Gospel accounts. What is Jesus repeatedly doing? He's repeatedly... Saying no to himself, giving himself away in love to others, putting himself at risk. Someone, um, in fact, I think it was Bruce Waltke. I know it was Bruce Waltke, who's kind of persona non grata now because of some things he said about Adam and Eve. But but he's still, I mean, he's still a great scholar and stuff. But um, Bruce Waltke defined righteousness in this way: righteousness. The righteous person is one who disadvantages himself in order to advantage another. That's a biblical definition of righteousness. The righteous person is one who disadvantages himself in order to advantage another. Makes himself poorer in order that the other might become richer. Makes himself unclean in order that the other might become clean. Has himself cut off in order that the other might be restored. Jesus, the incarnation of righteousness. So in both respects, throughout his life, Jesus fulfilled all of the law, and historically we we call that his active obedience. Um, Because moment by moment, he is actively pursuing, actively fulfilling, actively living the law, and by that obedience, secures favor with the Father, secures the Father's commendation. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Okay? We refer to the passive obedience of Christ as being Christ's submitting himself to death on the cross. Okay? Oh, oh, wait, I've got to give you a reference and, and talk about this for just a second. Romans 3. Uh, my guess is that you, you won't remember this from three years ago when we were in Romans 3. But this is, this is a very interesting take on Romans 3, verses 21 and 22. And, and I, I'm not completely sold, but I get the logic of the, of the uh, expositors, uh, the exegetes, who would have us understand it this way. So, verse 21, Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. All right? To what do the law and the prophets bear witness? Jesus. So, what is the righteousness that has been made manifest apart from the law to which the law and the prophets bear witness? Jesus. Okay? And then this is the, this is the, the interesting phrase the righteousness of God. And the ESV and most of the other translations would have it this way, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now what's interesting is that in the original, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is really, and I know this is a technical thing, but it's really a genitive construct. So a legitimate translation, a kind of a literal translation of this would be But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. Which... um, I mean that that, that literally that's a, that's literally it's a very legitimate way to translate it so you know then we make this distinction between an objective genitive and a subjective genitive right and my, my my head starts to spin around these things but the the question is is Jesus the object of faith in this construct or he is he the subject in view and I think he's the subject in view. It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which is for all who believe. So there's, there is this righteousness to which the law and the prophets testify. That righteousness is made manifest in Jesus Christ. And it is made manifest in his faithfulness. And that righteousness then is for all who believe in him. Which is a great proof text for this idea of The active obedience of Christ. Christ fulfilling all righteousness. And there are actually, and I didn't track all of these down, I think there are 11 other instances of this kind of construct in Paul's letters. Similar kind of construct. Where historically, probably because of the influence of Martin Luther and the Reformation, because we're always looking for justification by faith, which we should, and which is true, and which this rendering, if those who would hold this rendering are right. This in no way obviates or, or in any way um, um, counters or undermines an understanding of justification by faith. In fact, I think it probably actually illustrates the idea of justification by faith. The righteousness of God, which is through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who would believe and who would trust in that righteousness. That sounds like justification by faith to me. So it's a great proof text for this idea of uh, the active righteousness of Christ where Christ secures by his faithfulness a perfect righteousness for all who would believe in him. And then the passive um, obedience of Christ is Christ then submitting himself to the will of the Father uh, in the crucifixion, offering himself as a perfect spotless, um, sacrifice, offering himself uh, for the sins of his people. Now, s- there are those, and I, again, I know these are technical kinds of things, but they're fun to think about. You know, we make this distinction to distinguish these two things, but think about it. Christ is every bit as active in his dying on the cross as he is living the life of obedience across the days of his life. I mean, think about the things that Jesus says on the cross. The way in which even on the cross, he is loving those who are his enemies. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Think about the very last words of Jesus. As the father is visiting his wrath upon the son in judgment, into whose care is Jesus actively entrusting himself. Into your hands I commit my spirit. So there, there really is this sense in which Jesus on the cross is actively entrusting himself as he submits to the Father's will for him. He is actively, continually, moment by moment, entrusting himself to the Father. But he there, both you know, by this so-called active obedience and this passive obedience, offering himself to the Father it is through the cross that he then secures this righteousness for us. So if, you know, if, if, you, if we want to kind of build, I don't know, if you want to build a, I don't know what we're building here. But Christ, in both his life and death, his life of obedience and his death on the cross... acts as our substitute. And then it is upon that substitution that these ideas of expiation and propitiation rest. It is in his substitutionary work that sin is removed and the wrath of God is satisfied. So this then becomes the foundation or the basis upon which God can justify sinners. And that justification involves both of these things, these, these wonderful realities, the declaration of innocence and the clothing in righteousness, right? Because Christ here has secured the righteousness, he's removed the problem of sin, he has satisfied the wrath of God, that righteousness now is available to those who receive the gift that Christ offers, as they receive that gift, they are declared innocent, declared not guilty, and they, they are clothed in that righteousness. And that's, that's what constitutes our justification. And that's how the, you know, the writer of this letter can say, folks, this, you, can, you can go to bed tonight and sleep and be in peace. I mean, your conscience can be at rest. Because enough is finally enough. It's done. It's finished. And The last uh, last little thing, and um, we'll leave the last few minutes for you all to ask questions or make comments, is this um, this phrase through the eternal Spirit, um, and here again, the, the, there's just a you know a couple little paragraphs on this, but helpful little paragraphs. In fact, let me let me just read let me just read these. Um, So far we have skirted around this expression, but hopefully an idea of the immensity of what it refers to has been gained. These words explain how such a sacrifice could be offered on earth to God personally. They are like the fire on the altar that consumed all the burnt offering. But what do they actually refer to? There are two interpretations and there's something to be said for each of them. The first sees these words as referring to the Lord's divine nature this phrase, the eternal spirit. In favor of this is the fact that there is no definite article before the words eternal spirit, and also the fact that the expression eternal spirit resembles what is said in 17.6 about the deity of Jesus. This view yields the meaning that though the humanity of Jesus was without sin, it was infirm and needed the support of his deity. And where was that more necessary than at the cross? The idea that in Jesus are these two, the two natures. The human nature, the true human nature, and the divine nature. And the divine nature is there actually to sustain and to uphold and support the human nature. Because as Paul says in Romans 8, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. With all of the characteristics and features of of sinful flesh. Without sin. But weak. Weak and frail. I mean, Jesus fell asleep in the back of a boat. Jesus got hungry in the wilderness, being tempted. Real human frailties. But secondly, there is the view that sees here a reference to the Holy Spirit, and that is what we favor. The omission of the article and the use of the adjective eternal in 7.16 are not decisive considerations against this. The Spirit often lacks the article, and eternal is also used of inheritance in 9.15 technical matters. In favor of the understanding eternal spirit as the Holy Spirit is the fact that it is Christ, not Jesus, that is being spoken of. That is the Messiah, not just a human. And all that the Messiah did, he did by virtue of the Spirit abiding on him. Taking this view yields the wonderful truth that each person of the Holy Trinity was active and present in the moments in which redemption was actually secured, each in his own way. The Father was smiting the Son, the Son was submitting to the Father, and the Spirit was sustaining the incarnate Son. Only a triune God can save. Now, I I think there's a little overlap between these two views the thing that I think is, is helpful to point out, good to point out, is what he concludes that little section with, that there is the reality of the divine um, sustaining presence of the Spirit, the presence of the Father, as the Son is engaged in this work. And that sort of thing really goes all the way back to, the, that idea goes all the way back to the baptism of Jesus, uh, where at the baptism, the Spirit descends upon Jesus anointing him, clothing him, empowering him for his messianic office. So I'm, that's, I'm inclined to favor that, that view, that the eternal spirit is the Holy Spirit present with Jesus at the cross, upholding, sustaining, as he did across the whole of his ministry. It's interesting to, interesting to contemplate that. I mean, here is the incarnate Son of God, fully human, fully divine, and yet, at his baptism, the Spirit is poured out upon him, anointing him, uh, commissioning him, and empowering him for his ministry. And that, that same phenomenon occurs, as he says, at the most critical moment in the, rest, in the um, ministry of Jesus, and that is his cross work. And then, just to, just to kind of put a wrap on this, uh, this idea of the role of the Spirit uh, in the ministry of Jesus. Paul in Romans 1 uh, says, uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So there's, you know, there is the spirit Think about it, start to finish. Baptism, cross, and the Spirit present as the agent, um, the means by which uh, the Father raises the Son back to life. So, um, there you go. How much more? Offered, offered himself through the agent.